Hello everyone and welcome to The Dirt on Earth. My name is Demetria Lynn and I will be your host for the foreseeable future. The Dirt on Earth is a fanciful play on words. Getting the dirt, as in getting the scoop, the insider information, etc. This clues us into what this show is about, which is an in-depth look at Earth in a scientific context. We hope to enlighten and engage you with a mix of topics that span the spectrum of geologic concepts by engaging experts in research and discussions about the more intriguing aspects of Earth science, delving into their research and contributions. Our topics are often standalone, but many of the subjects we discuss exist within the context of a greater series. This is a collection of topics that, when strung together, complete a larger picture of an area of Earth science. Here's an example. One ongoing series is called The Autobiography of Earth. We call it the autobiography and not the biography because, well, we are part of Earth. And when we tell its story, we are telling our own story. And this story takes us in chronological order through geologic time from the birth of the planet to its eventual demise. This means from the Hadean through the present and then extrapolated beyond the unofficially termed necrozoic past the point of when all life ends. Necrozoic meaning dead life to the time when the sun goes red giant and its outer surface breaches Earth's orbit. I know we don't like to think about that much, but we kind of do. So yeah, that's on the table. Our topics, therefore, are not necessarily confined to the planet. We might, from time to time, mix in some cosmology and certainly some solar system dynamics. Basically, anything within the Oort cloud is fair game. For that matter, any energetic phenomenon that affects the Oort cloud might very well be discussed here. Another series we present here on The Dirt on Earth is one that was born from my lifelong awareness of the San Andreas Fault as a lifetime resident of Southern California. It's looming presence, that ominous threat of the big one in our backyard has gone unnoticed by no one. Becoming an Earth scientist myself, I was eventually made aware of the greater context of this behemoth, the tectonic ring of fire. That's another series, the over 40,000 kilometer long minefield of active plate boundaries that are capable of producing catastrophic earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and tsunamis all along the ridge of the Pacific Ocean Plate. Now, a fault like San Andreas offers us a dramatic visual of the scale and power of plate tectonics, but most of the ring of fire's mischief occurs deep under the surface of the ocean. And with that said, these long-running series like the Ring of Fire will also be accompanied by many series such as our first one, Deep Ocean Exploration. This mini-series was spawned from the tragic implosion of the Titan submersible on June 18, 2023. As we all know, it abruptly and sadly ended the lives of five very brave, courageous, adventurous, wide-eyed explorers, people like us, people that we can relate to regardless of their lofty socioeconomic status. It's definitely a topic that has earned the attention that it's gotten. And for me, I think one of the more fascinating aspects has been just how much this has captured the attention of so many people. We live in a world where people seem to have a very short attention span. Yet this tragedy brought a lot of us together. I think a lot of you, just like I did, saw on social media a lot of posts where people were saying, suddenly everyone's an oceanographer. And I think it just goes to show you how receptive people are, perhaps on a primal level, to becoming fascinated with the awe and the majesty, and the power of the planet. We tend to view Earth as a place that was made for us, but in reality, there remains vast domains that are decidedly inhospitable, that require a robust 
and reliable life support system just like in space in order for humans to dare to explore them. Our next podcast will feature a maritime law expert who will shed light on the legal aspects of the story of Ocean Gate's Titan submersible, as well as some of the ways in which the high seas might be better regulated, maybe to keep ocean exploration as safe as possible. We'll also be talking to a deep ocean pioneer who will discuss why this sort of research matters, why it is so important, and also some of the ambitious plans are in store for future deep sea science. So this is a broad overview of the types of topics you can look forward to hearing about on The Dirt on Earth. In the next segment, I'll be discussing the philosophical approach our show will take in examining these topics. I hope you find that intriguing. Stick around and I'll explain what all that means. I'm Demetria Lynn, and I'm very happy you found us here on The Dirt on Earth. The Titan submersible disaster certainly holds our attention as it relates to the Titanic, but I think much remains to be seen, Demetria, on whether this particular incident will have the same effect on international maritime public policy and regulation as the Titanic disaster itself did. And more the deluge part would come from if the sea level is higher and brings the sea closer to you and all of a sudden you have a storm surge from a hurricane, that's going to make those things much worse, that they will bring the storm surges farther inland. Welcome back to The Dirt on Earth. I'm Demetria Lynn, your host, and you just heard clips from two of our upcoming shows. The first was a sneak peek into a discussion we will be having with Brian McNamara. He is a professor of practice at the John Lewis Public Administration Program at Tulane University. He'll be speaking extensively about the legal side of the Ocean Gate catastrophe. You also heard a clip from an interview with Dr. Ian Jocklin, professor of oceanography at the University of Washington. He was discussing the dangers of living in low-lying coastal regions with the threat of rising sea level looming. These conversations and many more are coming up on our next installments of The Dirt on Earth. But right now, as promised, I'd like to take a moment to reflect on what this podcast means to me and why I felt compelled to will it into reality. I'm somewhat of a polymath someone with an obsessive thirst for knowledge. Antiquity in particular has always held a tantalizing allure for me, and it's given rise to a life spent poring over humanities and trying to gain a comprehensive understanding of how civilizations come into being and sustain themselves. I'm captivated by the idea of ongoing stories that have yet to completely play themselves out. I also have a habit of analyzing the crap out of every little detail of anything I become remotely hyper-interested in, and etymology is one of my biggest weaknesses. Now, there was always this persistent suffix, lithic, that never escaped my notice, as in paleolithic, neolithic. One day, I innocently looked up the etymologies of these words, and that opened a gaping rabbit hole that I have been falling down ever since. The Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, With all the politics and the ideologies and the dogmas, the old gods and the new that have come and gone, when all is said and done, each civilization that has risen, flourished, and fallen has been defined by its materials, the tangible evidence left behind of how they went about their day-to-day lives. Since the Iron Age, historiography has defined ages by political climates, the Roman, Byzantine, Ottoman empires, the Industrial Age. 
one might be tempted to view humanity as continuing to live in the Iron Age. It does seem like we still use a lot of iron, a lot of steel. Certainly, the Industrial Age has had its many ages within its greater age as technology has been evolving fairly rapidly over the past couple centuries. There is certainly an argument in favor of this being, let's say, the Plastic Age or the Silicon Age, and I, I can only imagine that there will be a very distinct period in time we are known as the Nuclear Age. But all of that is a discussion for a later show. Getting back to my point, it wasn't until quite late in life, after two decades of working as a radio producer, that I went back to school and got a degree in geology. It was a calling that I had ignored for far too long. While I was in school, people would ask me what I planned to do with a geology degree. I was just going to let the curriculum carry me. It wasn't until I got real close to graduation that it started to come into focus that there were essentially two paths. You were either going to go and work for a consulting firm or become an academic. I always thought I was going to just go to work, having been working my whole life, and academia was the thing that was foreign. It was inconceivable to me that I would go on and do research for a living. Actually, it was inconceivable until I did a research experience for undergraduate program at an ice core laboratory. I knew then that I wanted to continue my education. That experience gave me the research itch. Actually, I kind of considered it a couple of years earlier. The school I got my undergraduate degree from didn't have a very robust climate science section. It amounted to one paleoclimatology class and one oceanography class. These were both electives, but I am very happy that I elected to take them. I would say that out of everything from my entire undergraduate experience, paleoclimatology and oceanography stuck with me the most. I inhaled everything about it. But in my very last semester before graduation, the geophysics elective finally opened up. It wasn't until then that we even had a geophysics professor. And being the physics head that I was, I couldn't resist it. And yes, I found it equally titillating. So right now I'm actually in this gap period between undergraduate and grad school, still trying to decide on atmospheric science or geophysics. I don't know. Let's see. Maybe hopefully this podcast might help me figure it out. But suffice it to say, I needed the time off because that REU showed me that I wasn't as prepared for grad school as I needed to be. My glaring deficiencies were linear algebra, statistics, and programming. I had a teeny bit of exposure to Python during my undergraduate time, but not nearly as much as I needed to hit the ground running in grad school. It's weird, but linear algebra and statistics weren't required for my undergraduate degree. So I finished Calculus 2 and I was under this delusion that I was all set. I now know that it is not feasible to expect to go into grad school or anything really science intensive without a strong, solid foundation in these areas. And I feel the need to say all this because A, there are undergraduate students who need to hear it if they haven't already, and B, there are faculties out there who need to leave their students with no question of how important this is. Okay, so now digressing from the business part of geology, allow me to indulge in the pleasure of geology. Learning geology means learning another language. I'm not talking about the jargon or the nomenclature. Let me approach it this way. I know most geologists can relate to having had to answer this question at least once in their life. Why do you love rocks so much? When I'm asked this question, this is how I answer it 
boldly speaking, by the way, for all geologists, I tell them, geologists don't necessarily love rocks any more than crime scene investigators love blood splatters or entry wound trajectories. We're interested in events. And when you learn to read the language coded in rocks, a series of events will reveal themselves. The rocks themselves contain an elegant prose, if you allow me to wax poetic for a second, which we learn to understand, and then we go ahead and record them on maps and graphs and tables, etc. In learning this language, you eventually come to understand that Earth is a masterpiece. It's a symphony of systems. And everything you see around you is the result of an uncanny convergence of conditions and processes that bring forth and sustain life on our planet for now. The grandness of its scale, especially its time scale, can be rather humbling. Geologists are in regular contact with awe. Geologists are regularly contemplating the patience, the steady, primal forces. So there's no place for ego when you're always in the face of such immense power. And it all really comes down to plate tectonics and the under-recognized, under-appreciated role that it plays in the abundant diversity of life. This fundamental geologic process is what sets Earth apart from all other planets in the solar system, and it is not a coincidence that we are the only, as far as we know, that has life. Of the four rocky planets, just one has plate tectonics. Just one rumbles and shudders with the relentless disharmony of massive plates colliding and rifting, giving rise to mountain ranges, ocean basins, shaping and reshaping the planet's surface, redirecting ocean currents, altering global climates. Plate tectonics is the engine driving the evolution of mineral species, which has catalyzed the evolution of the biosphere. The increasing availability of different minerals caused by plate tectonics influences the development and evolution of life forms, soft-bodied, simple organisms evolving into complex, rugged, shelled, toothed, scaly, hairy, feathered, armored life forms that gradually accumulate and diversify over wide swaths of geologic space and time. Minerals are vital. They provide the necessary nutrients for plants to grow. Certain minerals influence the composition of soils, which affects the type of vegetation available in different regions. This, in turn, has laid the groundwork for much of what accounts for cultural diversity on our planet, which is strongly rooted in native cuisine, which arises from regional food availability. And, consider this, at their very heart, ancient trade routes were dictated by regional mineralogy. Civilizations obviously settle around abundant water sources. As far as the history of civilization is concerned, geologists have been the most important people on the planet. Prove me wrong. The geosphere provides the physical framework that sustains the biosphere, while the biosphere influences and interacts with the geosphere in a reciprocal manner. This is a symbiotic relationship. The presence of life affects the composition of the atmosphere, the weathering of rocks, the cycling of nutrients, all of which play critical roles in shaping Earth's surface and environments. Earth isn't just a place. 
Earth is a story. Earth's emergence as a habitable planet required billions of years of shifting dynamics between geologic, atmospheric, and biological processes. We are living today in a privileged, sweet spot, a fleeting moment of optimal conditions that have graciously allowed for our existence. Yet, we do have to confront the inevitable reality that the geologic clock will continue to tick and Earth's story will not remain static. The rock cycle, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, all the cycles will once again someday be transformed back into an inhospitable and decidedly not Earth-like planet. Because remember, Earth's story is secondary, not primary. When we gaze upon the cosmos as the night sky comes into view, we're not observing Earth-sized objects. The cosmos is a medium filled with stellar evolution, with the dynamics of our Goldilocksy just-right star having the ultimate say in our fate. It is not infinite. It, too, is undergoing cosmic timescale transformations, and as delicate as Earth's interpersonal relationship is with the sun, imperceptible shifts in the sun's energy can have catastrophic effects on our small and fragile home. Understanding and appreciating the precarious fragility of Earth's systems brings our responsibility as custodians of this planet into high-resolution focus. Deforestation, polluting the precious water supply, the air that we breathe, all have profound implications for the present and future of this planet. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but there seems to be a growing movement of science denial and backlash against education in general, not just here in the United States, but around the world. It's almost impossible to watch a video about science on the internet, particularly if the subject is earth science, that doesn't draw a litany of snide comments from science-rejecting ideologues that all seem to parrot identical narratives, as if under a form of organized indoctrination. Is it part of a larger agenda? Hmm, don't know. But it's always cause for alarm when any segment of the powers that be rigorously promotes anti-intellectualism. Because you see, the less we know, the easier we are to control. I'm a Gen Xer. We grew up being taught a lot of self-empowering sayings and proverbs, such as, knowledge is power. Have you noticed that we don't really hear that anymore? I made it a point to teach my children that. And I need to tell you here, if you're listening, that just because people aren't saying it anymore like they were saying it in the 70s and 80s doesn't make it any less true in 2023. Knowledge is power. Denial of knowledge is willful forfeit of power. I'm going to tell you something else. Divisive narratives are destructive. As I've been discussing this whole time, this planet has reached a glorious period of life-giving, life-sustaining, balanced equilibrium that is optimal for our existence. This planet is four and a half billion years old, and four billion of those years was spent finding balance and equilibrium. Certainly, we've had mass extinctions, climate extremes happen, one end of the spectrum to the other, but the lesson still remains. None of this happens 
without Earth's systems working in cooperation with one another. Any politician who is promoting divisiveness and chaos over cooperation does not mean society any good. As we continue our mini explorations on the dirt on Earth, we will be confronted with both the wonders and the beauty, as well as the perils and the impermanence of our planet. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Demetria Lynn, and I am honored to have had you with us. Stay curious, stay humble, and let's appreciate the amazing phenomenon called Earth together. <music>